Hello, I'm Michael Depp, the editor of TV News Check, and this week I am with Dr. Dwayne Varon, the CEO of Media Science and Hark Connect, and we are Talking TV. Talking TV is made possible by Making the Media, a podcast from Avid, exploring the forces that shape the media, news, and entertainment business. The latest episode focuses on the streaming technology Secure Reliable Transport, or SRT. Host Craig Wilson interviews Peter Mogg from High Vision, the company which invented SRT. Mogg explains the background to the technology, the workflows it supports, the work they are doing in the cloud, and the future direction for SRT. Making the Media is available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other podcast platforms. Welcome, Dwayne Varon. It's great to be here. Now, let me introduce you for those who don't know you. You are the CEO, as I said, at the top of Media Science and Hark Connect. Media Science conducts lab-based research, counting almost every major US TV network, social media platform, and many global brands as clients. And Hark Connect is a qualitative research platform. So you've done research into advertising for TV, OTT, mobile. Your work has taken you into addressable advertising, brand integrations, and program context effects. I wanted to talk to you today to tap into what's coming over the horizon in terms of all of it and your latest insights into what audiences are looking for and what they'll tolerate in ad types. So let's uh, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, and let's start with OTT. Um, it seems that NBCU has been developing some very new interesting formats there. And we've seen some of them on this podcast before talking about those uh, those units in the past. What are you seeing beyond with NBCU and beyond about what's emerging there in OTT? Yeah, I mean, um, all of the uh, the commercial OTT platforms, I think, have a lot of really exciting and innovative ad units that are coming in. Um, you know, certainly we used to live in a, in, a, in a universe that was a one-trick pony, you know, the 30-second commercial, and everybody had to fit their marketing problem into that one template. But as we go into the future, we're really going to be moving more and more into a universe of infinite possibilities. And, and we're still in the early era of that, starting to see people grapple with some of the new formats like, you know, like branded pauses, um, you know, picture in picture ads, um, uh, choice ads like, you know, Hulu made popular all those years ago. Um, you know, uh, increasingly we'll see more and more harnessing the power of interactivity in particular, but um, we have a long way to go. We're in infancy. These are very, very early days still, I think in terms of, 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 of uh, the progress that we're making and 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 the, the challenge is that tv is a much more limited opportunity for interaction you know it's not as easy to interact with as other devices and so we're going to really have to kind of like move at the pace of the consumer with it not not move too fast in terms of a lot of the the the, uh, the opportunities that we put before them well let's drill into that consumer pace a little bit more how 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 much are they willing to take and how much how much elasticity does television does linear tv especially even have yeah, um, I'll tell you about a project that did many moons ago. It was actually for the BBC. It was a very cool project. It was, a, it was an interactive uh, documentary. 
And uh, it was a Vietnam War documentary that told the story from different perspectives. So you, you'd switch kind of like uh, between perspectives. What we discovered in that study was that the key to increasing the act interactivity was to actually tone down the interactivity, that you need to make it easy, you need to make it um, only when it's really relevant. You know, the, the tendency is to try to tinker with it too much and try to get it to work too hard. And, and really you have to kind of like tone it back pretty aggressively. Um, certainly with the ad models, you know, the things that have been rolling out are all at that minimal end of the spectrum, you know, things like a branded pause. I mean, you know, people are going to pause anyway. So if they're seeing branding messaging happening at that time, uh, the, the, it's no skin off their back in that sense. So, so those are the kinds of things I think that we're, we're seeing in, in, in this, uh, in, in these early days with, uh, with OTT. What's the psychology behind that, that simplicity? Is it, is it that people, <clears throat> excuse me, the TV is sort of laid back inherently and and so you you it's a whole passive medium or is there something more to it than that i mean it is a, a lean back medium but it's also how you interact with your tv uh typically you're not using your remote control you're not using it like the way you would use your your sony playstation controller right so you're not kind of like in this interactive mode you're not it's not as natural to do as say swiping on your phone you know it has a lot of constraints inherent in the nature of the interaction itself, which means that, you know, you're only going to really be able to use your up, down, side arrow keys, an enter button, very, very, very few buttons. And you have to recognize the remote control is not in their hand. So you want them to do something, they've got to reach, get the remote control and then interact with it. So when you're intersecting things that people are naturally doing, like, like you do say with the branded pause, you know, obviously that's going to be uh, easier to do, but when you're demanding something of them that goes beyond that, then there's a, there's an extra challenge in there and you've got to clip the ticket to kind of get them on board with it. Mm -hmm. So it seems in OTT that ad repetition is still a chronic problem. I mean, in my own anecdotal experience, I encounter it incessantly and I'm looking at you, Peacock and Hulu. So where is the industry with that problem and how are viewers like me who get extremely frustrated to see the same state farm ad for the umpteenth time during a program where are we with with any progress on that so i think there's a, a number of issues there one is that um of course ott becomes more addressable so that creates an opportunity but i do agree with you the idea of giving people the same ad over and over again is a mistake. In fact, um, we did a study where we tested the difference between only having an ad appear once versus having the ad appear four times during a one hour TV show. And, and this is a limited interruption model where you're not seeing lots of ads, but the ads that you're seeing are, are just repeating, right? And what we found was there was no added value for the advertiser in those repeat exposures. And where in, in a clutter environment that might have worked because you maybe break through clutter in a limited interruption environment, you get zero value with those repeat exposures. So no so added value, but what a, about, is there a detrimental effect? And there is a detrimental effect as well. Yes, it does increase the perception, you know, of, of, uh, uh, of um, people's uh, ad intrusiveness uh, perceptions and stuff. So, so no gain. Uh, a bad thing. The, the reason it happens, though, is because we trade in a very uh, unsophisticated way. We're trading on GRPs. 
And so the, the, uh, the publisher is getting the same value by basically having that go. And the other problem is that when you go addressable, you end up with a problem with inventory because you don't, unlike your traditional TV model where you have an abundance of inventory, suddenly in this, in this universe where you're selling for a premium, these targeted spots, now you don't have a lot of those spots. And so you're just repurposing the same one over and over again. Um, when we tested, we had this one study that was really cool where we tested uh, something like 42 new ad models with uh, consumers, but we also tested it with media buyers. So we wanted to see what the trade-off was between the value to the advertiser and the value to the consumer. And the single most popular model in that mix for addressability was frequency capping. So what, what both media buyers and viewers want is they want frequency capping, but it's not what we're doing with our move to addressability. So it's what we should be doing as we move into addressability. We should be frequency capping, but we're not. So it does represent, I think, a cardinal sin that as an industry we're committing. It doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit the advertiser. It doesn't benefit the viewer. It's a lose-lose proposition. I couldn't agree more there. Um, you did some early research on short six-second video ads. What, what are the latest insights into brevity? And where are tolerances or, or preferences falling there? Well, so um, as a rule of thumb, what our research shows is that a six-second ad delivers about 60% of the value of a 30. And uh, by way of uh, contrast, a 15-second ad delivers about 80% of the value of a 30. So that's disproportionately a lot of value. And the reason that that is so high is that much of the impact of an ad is actually delivered in its first two or three seconds. Um, so people are being reminded of who the brand is very quickly. They make a go, no-go decision in that time period, and the ad will either have its effect or not have its effect, largely on the basis of that. And so you, and, and where those six-second ads can be really powerful is as a reminder of something you've seen. So you might have seen a 30-second ad, and then if you see the six-second ad, what's happening is it's playing out in your head even though you're not seeing the six, the full six second, uh, the full 30 seconds, you kind of almost have a shorthand index of what it was. And so it's kind of jogging through those, uh, that, that memory activation for you. So six second ads do work. Of course, if you have a lot of six, six second ads, you have clutter. And what our research demonstrates is that too many six second ads spoil the soup. So, you know, you definitely want to think about using it in very deliberate ways and, and, smart ways like, um, you know, for example, during a game, the referees are conferring, have a six second ad pop up picture in picture. That's great real estate. So think about innovative ways of using the real estate rather than just thinking about them as substitutes, particularly with clutter, which I think would be problematic for, for that format. So the six second ad sort of best needs a mothership to work, but you brought a picture in picture just now to, that's, that's something relatively new uh, as well. How how intrusive do you know how are audiences reacting to that it seems like a great use of space and time however does that become does that have an irritating effect on audiences well not for many of the work we've done we've always found that the picture in picture is a very effective ad unit um it doesn't have the perception it doesn't have the same perception of being an ad 
particularly because of the way the content is still accessible. So people don't mind it the same way they mind a normal ad break. Um, and we know from the research that we've done, by the way, the first study that we did on this ad format was in 2009. So it's actually kind of new to the industry, but it was actually for Good, uh, Good Morning America for ABC. So they really kind of like pioneered it with that. But what we found was that, you know, we find that it's got no adverse impact for the program. Uh, it, of course, it delivers an ad impact, even though it's a smaller ad, because it's picture in picture, it's actually delivering an impact on par with a full screen, you know, ad and in, in, in a normal ad break. So it's a real win-win proposition. But like anything, you know, you have to use it cautiously, like you, you don't want to overdo the effect and, and undermine its efficacy. But certainly as a, you know, as a general rule of thumb, it's a very effective model, more effective than a traditional ad, in fact. There's, there's not a detrimental effect by sort of just distraction of having two simultaneous images in the screen that doesn't have any adverse effect? Uh, there is an art to it, for sure. A lot of the work that we've done has been about that nuance and getting the nuance right. Um, if the screen is too big, it hurts the content. If the screen is too small, it hurts the ad. Um, you know, locations matter. So there is an art to doing the picture in picture right. And there are things that you can do that get it wrong. Um, but certainly as a whole, I think it's a very effective model. So a little bit of a Goldilocks moment you have to have, but it can work. Um, yeah, you, you, you are kind of like um, balancing interests. And so it's important to make sure that you do that effectively. Mm -hmm. I mentioned program context effects in the intro, um, and that's where we look at how different programming uh, program environments affect ads. So we've had a year and a half of COVID social justice protests last year, an endlessly divided political climate. All of that informs every newscast every every time. So what are you learning about how the news environment is impacting ads, both nationally and locally, given that, that it's a very, it can be very fraught viewing experience? Yeah, people, you know, um, these context transfer effects that you're talking about are actually incredibly complex. Uh, the market has a simplistic understanding of the way they, they work typically, like they think it's about just, you know, if it's a good environment, that's a good thing. And if it's a, if it's a negative environment, that's a bad thing. It's actually not that simple. It's incredibly complex. We, we talk about 10 different types of context transfer effects and they all work very differently. And typically what we see for news is even though news may be going into negative content, um, overall, it's very activating of your cognitive resources. So when you go into news, your, your gears are kind of like in, in motion and you're really thinking about what's going on and what you're hearing much more than the rest of your TV viewing, your, your normal TV viewing experience, right? And, and what's happening with that is because of the activation of those cognitive resources, you have better access to your memory pathways. So what we've been able to demonstrate is that particularly for memory, ads that appear in the news environment benefit enormously. They actually outperform other content rather than underperform it. So, so advertisers are wrong when they think news is a bad environment. News is actually a superior environment for, for their content. When the content gets very negative, you actually get a different thing that starts to kick in, which is, what, you know, which is a mood repair effect. So what happens if the content is, if the news story is negative, is that people go into the ad break wanting to restore their homeostasis, their sense of balance. And so the ad helps them in that task of restoring it. And so the ad actually 
over delivers again, performs better than it would in other environments because of that hero effect that it has of delivering this value to the viewer. So there are a lot of really interesting things that, that we see that happen and that kick in with news content specifically. How do you measure that? And when you're testing audiences, you're running that, like how, how is that something you are able to pinpoint? Well, there's a lot of different ways that we test it actually. There's a lot, I mean, what I synthesize for you is actually not one study, but many studies that we've done. We've done a lot of work around, around news since uh, 2013, we've been doing this research for you know, the leading news networks. And um, you know, some of it is looking at EEG research that we do, looking at, so for example, the mood repair stuff I told you about, we know that by looking at approach withdrawal in terms of looking at uh, uh, brainwave activity. So we're able to see that other things being equal, when people are exposed to a negative news story, they go into the ad break with greater activation of their approach mechanisms. So that's an example of one way. We've done it also where uh, to measure whether people's cognitive resources are activating. We did a really cool study where people went into ad breaks, uh, watched content, whether news or prime time. So, you know, drama, sitcoms, uh, reality shows. And what happens is instead of ads, they actually do little cognitive games, kind of like what you'd see on lumosity.com. So one of those games is for example, what's called the Stroop test where you go in and you see a color on your screen. Uh, it's written out in a word. So the word is B-L-U-E, but it appears in red ink and you have to identify the correct color. Your gut says it's red, but if you think about it rationally, you will know that it's blue. And so we look at the response time for a correct response, and we then compare that when people are exposed to news content versus, versus others, comedy, drama, reality, and we see that people have faster access to correctly identifying the color when they've been exposed to news content. So that's how we know that people have gone into the ad break with better activation of those, uh, better access to their uh, cognitive resources and their cognitive functions and other tests like that, looking at galvanic skin response, heart rate data. I mean, all this data really informs the position that we've articulated around the superiority of news. So your test subjects are pretty wired up as they're watching. <laughs> that's Batman. good. That's good. Yes. Wow. <laughs> They're wired up. That's exactly right. Literally. Yeah. So, so looking out, what do you see as the most significant ad trends that we'll all be seeing in the next year based on the research you're doing? Well, I think, um, I think that there are already a number of formats that are in market, you know, uh, the brand pause, the choice format, which Hulu did many years ago, but which, which many others are adopting. Um, limited interactivity, you know, like uh, simple response to offers, that kind of thing. Some of that we're seeing with QR codes. Um, these are the kinds of things that I think are on the early horizon. On the farther horizon, um, from the research that I've done, I can tell you where I think the real fireworks are going to be is when we really get into more advanced forms of interactivity. Um, we're not there as an industry. We have a long way to go because the skill sets aren't there yet in terms of how to build these. But when you go into the future, longer term future, there are really exciting opportunities around, um, you know, uh, interactive stories, you know, ads that actually tell a story interactively around interactive branded game experiences. I mean, what we can do potentially going into the future is actually incredibly exciting and incredibly effective, but we're still many steps behind in terms of getting there. So we have a way to go, I think, as an industry before we get to that level of, of interaction.
But now I'm intrigued. Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of what that interactive ad story might look like and how, how complex is this? Sure. Yeah, so we did a project for Nike many, many, many moons ago. And it was, a, I, I made a critical mistake when I did the, when I, I did the deal because um, you know, it was a student project that I did. So I had a student team. So it was not, we didn't have a lot at stake in terms of the cost of it, you know, because obviously it was a, a, you know, a student team. But what we did is we said to Nike that we could deliver something that outperformed their linear ads. And they said, not a problem. If you can deliver, then we'll pay you. But if not, you don't get anything. We said, sure, not a problem. Well, we had no idea just how incredibly powerful a Nike ad really is and how little the room is. The, the ceiling effect is so strong. There's not actually a lot of room for improvement. So uh, it was a, a massive task. It took seven generations of testing to finally find a format that outperformed uh, a Nike linear ad. But what we landed on was a, a full interactive story where you kind of like picked what happened next in the story and um, really powerful. People want to experience it again. There was a lot we had to learn about how to tell that story. And this is what I was saying about how far we have to go in terms of the skill set. The, the ways that people have attempted to do interactive stories, you know, have not been all that great. And in particular, they end up violating narrative structure in the process, which is not going to make it effective. So there are a lot of rules that we need to get through in terms of figuring out how to do it effectively. So that was the kind of thing that we had to do. Another example, Michael, to talk about a, an interactive game experience, we did a great project. Um, it was called the Crest Celebrity Smile. It was an ad for toothpaste. Uh, the housewife is walking in the street you know, the, for the normal ad. Her teeth are so beautiful that people are snapping her photos everywhere because she's just she's got such beautiful teeth. So she must be a celebrity. So then we go, you click on the ad and you go into the Crest Celebrity Smile, which is a game where you see a face of a famous of a famous celebrity, but it's all pixelated. But the smile is crystal clear. And you have to, the faster you can tell us who that celebrity is the more points you get as the face gradually starts to depixelate. So eventually you can see who it is. Well, it's a freaky thing. If you see Tom Cruise's smile, you instantly know that that's Tom Cruise. It's freaky. <laughs> and so people can identify these people incredibly quickly. And, and what that does is it actually reinforces the fundamental premise underlying the entire uh, ad, which is that your smile matters. And so what we saw, for example, in that case is we doubled purchase intention, which is massive. So these are just examples of what I'm talking about, where what we're doing is great, but what's on the long-term horizon is really going to be incredibly phenomenal once the market can develop the skills that are really necessary to delivering those effectively. And once the television set or the remote control also seems to have to evolve, if, if you're consuming these ad, these kinds of ads in a linear fashion on, on a conventional television, it sounds like we're going to need some new, I don't know, more yeah, so, controls. So the examples that I gave you were, were all very, very simple interactions. So it did not require anything like a, a PlayStation gaming experience, anything. They were just basically the arrow keys and the enter button. And that's all you needed. So that's that's a, a central premise for us that you know that 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 you have to build with that very limited toolbox. Well, Dr. Dwayne Vern, I want to come over to your lab and look over your shoulder and have a look. At what's going on <laughs> you, should. you should, you should, you should come. It's, come it's, to it's Australia fun. and and check this out because this is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for talking with me. Of course, me. our our labs are in Chicago, New York, and Austin, so you okay. don't have to go that far. <laughs> I'll go to any of them because this sounds like really really good interesting stuff. Um, so, so 
don't be a stranger. Keep us abreast of your work. And, and thanks very much for talking with me. Fantastic. Thanks again. Cheers. A new episode of Talking TV is available most Fridays on tvnewscheck.com. You can also listen and subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Talking TV is edited by Alyssa Wesley. The music is by Andrew Melinda, and it's produced and hosted by me, Michael Depp. Talking TV is a production of TV News Check.